Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Matt Gates said he will attempt to oust Kevin McCarthy from the speakership this week. We have an amazing show for you today. The State's Projects Daniel Squadron talks to us about how his organization helps Democrats. We'll talk to NPR's Steve Inskeep. He'll tell us about his new book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. But first, we have the author of Win Every Argument, MSNBC's Mehdi Hassan. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Mehdi. Thank you for having me, Molly. I hope you were watching those quote-unquote impeachment hearings with the same sort of unbelievable schadenfreude that I was discuss. It was hilarious, I have to say. It was so much worse for the Republicans <laughs> than I thought it would be. I think we all thought it would be bad for the Republicans. Anyone who's been following the hunter, hunter, hunter stuff for years knows there's no there there. I thought they would at least have some kind of, you know, as, as Neil Cavuto, Fox Post, put it yesterday, we thought there would be smoke and there might be some fire to go with the smoke, but there was just more smoke on top of smoke. They were so unprepared. And I keep saying this, I've been saying this for years. The only reason we are not in a fully complete fascist state in America right now is because thankfully the fascists on offer are so incompetent. And that applies to Donald Trump. That applies to all of these House Republican freaks. They're just so bad at their jobs. We are lucky that we are not up against smart and savvy fascists. And there are smart and savvy fascists out there. 
But the ones in charge of the GOP right now are just so incompetent, whether it's Kevin McCarthy, whether it's Jim Jordan, whether it's James Comer, Byron Donald's rising star, you know, admits into evidence a text that <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tears apart. It's just a completely out of context, doctored meaning. And this is what they did. And it was so bad that their own aides are going around briefing CNN of all people saying, oh my God, this was a disaster. This was a catastrophe. You have Steve Bannon in real time being quoted yeah. by Democrats in the inquiry while he says on his show in real time, why do we have these witnesses? Why were they not on the maybe list? Why is it so going so badly? So yeah, it was a disaster. On one hand, it was fun to watch. On the other hand, let's remind ourselves, by them doing this, not only are they degrading Congress, degrading impeachment, but of course there's a government shutdown coming as well. So it's an insult to all these people who are going to lose paychecks on Monday morning. Yeah, I did think that was incredible stuff. And I think it's really important to note that there really is like their job is actually to govern. And, you know, it was fun to watch, but ultimately the American people suffer. They've made it clear that isn't their job. I mean, they're not hiding it. Their job is not to govern. Their job is to own the libs. Their job is to perform. Their job is to be on Fox. I think Maxwell Frost had a great line yesterday about Jonathan Turley. Thank you for stopping by here on your way to your next Fox hit. <laughs> that sums <laughs> them up true. perfectly. And John Boehner said this years ago in his memoir that I was dealing with a crazy right-wing caucus, he said, where Michelle Bachman, if I turned her down, she said, well, I'm going on Hannity tonight to criticize you. Like that has been the plan for years. That is what they do. I mean, there's a great supercar. I'm sure you spend as much time as I do on healthy amount of time on Twitter as I do, Molly. You've seen, I'm sure, the supercut of Ted Cruz just saying, on my podcast, on my podcast, on my podcast, on my podcast. He's a podcaster first, a senator from the great state of Texas second. And that is who these people are. They're not interested in governing to the point where Newt Gingrich is telling the Washington Post today, I think this is nuts. What are they doing a shutdown for? Even Newt Gingrich, the master of nihilistic politics of burn it all down, of confrontation, even he doesn't understand what is going on with the shutdown. And as for the impeachment inquiry, yeah, they're doing it for the sake of doing it. But with Bill Clinton, at least there was something there. With this, there's literally nothing. They've got nothing on the Biden. And all that yesterday was, was a great opportunity, as you and I both pointed out in separate tweets, for House Democrats to say, hey, look at our young and upcoming stars especially the people of color. Look at Maxwell Frost owning the Republicans. Look at Jasmine Crockett in that amazing, passionate, viral moment. Summer Lee, obviously AOC, who yes. we've known for years, doing fantastic work. These people were just knocking it out of the park one after another. And it's just a reminder of how good the quote unquote democratic bench is that we're often told is not deep and how <laughs> bad the Republican leadership yeah, I mean, I was watching, there were so many of these Republicans, just like mediocre white guys with red ties, sitting there, sort of <laughs> looking embarrassed. People you've never heard of. And they suddenly yes. are like, oligogolok. The other guy who couldn't say oligot. That was, <laughs> it was it, one of my so favorite moments. Bad. There's no quality control on half of the American political spectrum. Well, we have an education problem in this country, but that is for another day. I just want to get back to Newt Gingrich. Like Newt Gingrich was the architect of all of these kind of like shutdowns for shutdown's sake and the government to burn it down and this sort of Marxist zeal. But my question for you is this. Now, here we are. This shutdown even seems like as shutdowns go, it's basically Matt Gates thinking he's acting on the behalf of Donald Trump, which he probably is, versus Kevin 
McCarthy. There's not some other thing here that we're not seeing, right? No, it is an intra-Republican squabble between Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gaetz. I think, is it the Post or Politico? Some outlet today, I can't remember which one, has a great piece about how it's so personal between them. And there's a really depressing graph in the piece about how apparently (laughs) they both are annoyed and they're jealous that Donald Trump likes one over the other. They both think Trump yeah. likes the other one more than... Imagine bringing the country to a screeching halt because you want Donald Trump to love you more than your colleague. I mean, it tells you everything about the Republican Party. And just to go back to Newt Gingrich, like when Newt Gingrich, as you say, the architect of burn it down, of government shutdowns, is saying, what are we doing here? This is nuts. It's like, I don't know, it's like Jack the Ripper saying, you're killing too many people. Like, what is going on here? What on earth are we doing? Wherever the Republican Party reach? And, you know, Jamie Raskin had a great line in the impeachment inquiry yesterday. That this is a Seinfeld impeachment, right? It's an impeachment about nothing. And the same line is being applied to the shutdown. It's a Seinfeld shutdown. It's about nothing. Whatever you think about the old GOP shutdowns, which were also absurd, at least they were about something, right? In 2018-19, it was about funding the border wall. A decade ago, it was about ACA, Obamacare, all of that nonsense that they oppose. Now it's about literally, what are you shutting the government down? What's your demand? They don't have one. Right. I kind of want to talk about Representative Tony Gonzalez. He's <laughs> in Republican leadership, but yesterday he was not focused on the government shutdown, nor was he focused on the quote unquote impeachment. He was uh, on a little trip with our, our good friend. He was with the owner of X.com, <laughs> formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> who I don't understand. I know I sound silly and naive, but this is a genuine, this is not troll, genuine question. What was Elon Musk doing at the border? Like, why? He's not running for president. By the way, his stands may want him to be president. He can never be president. Thankfully. Not born in this country, yeah. The one blessing of our lives. <laughs> and what's he doing there? Like, is the CEO of BMW going to the border tomorrow? <laughs> I know we've become numb to this, Molly, but the guy runs a car company and owns a social media with it. What is he doing there? At least when Mark Zuckerberg went on this tour of America, it's because we thought he might run for president in 2020. Thankfully, he did not. What? I don't understand. No one even, we've, we've reached this weird part of celebrity politics now where no one even asks. Why is he at the border? We're just expected to think that's normal. He turns up at the border in a cowboy hat that apparently I'm no expert on cowboy. He was wearing it backwards. You know, that's how it is to be the richest man in the world. None of your sycophantic staff will tell you, boss, you got the cap on the wrong way around. (laughs) Nor will the congressman who's hosting you, presumably new. It's so bizarre. He turns up there and then he goes live on X. The video then stops working. There's reporting that he blasted his staff and said, make this work, which is so ironic. By the way, on a side note, I've been watching a lot of Elon Musk recently for my sins because I did a long, here's a, here's a shameless plug for the Mary Hassan <laughs> show. This week, we did a long, deep dive into hate on Twitter, which Musk claims doesn't exist. You remember that time he said to the BBC reporter, name me an example, and the reporter foolishly couldn't do it. So we've gone through two dozen examples of tweets that are up, including Musk's own anti-Semitic tweet. Right. So anyways, we did that. So we watched a lot of Musk footage. When you watch Musk, a lot of us don't watch Musk, right? We see his tweet. But right. actually watch him speak as he was yesterday. My God god the man lacks charisma my god the man struggles to deliver a sentence my god the man is a bad speaker he's just got nothing to say which is probably why he spends so much time on his keyboard so i just found that fascinating that like you know why are you there you're not very good at what you're doing your platform isn't working on a day when your ceo also had a meltdown the day after that yeah so that was incredible just the whole thing is bizarre and as aoc said what's the congressman doing there why is he not on on the capitol hill trying to protect his constituents from an unnecessary shutdown. A shutdown, by the way, let's just put a bow on all of this. Which they're causing. They're causing and will cost the CBP 
millions and right. millions of dollars. They're going to, as Mitch McConnell pointed out, their beloved border patrol and border protection is going to get cut in funding when the government shuts down. How ironic. But the thing that I don't understand about it is it's true he owns a car company, but he also owns a large percentage of American satellites. Yeah. So this is not like the CEO of Overstock acting out, right? This is a person for whom his opinions, as we found out with the use or abuse of Starlink, right, has real consequences, right? He turned off Starlink so that the Ukrainians couldn't attack the Russians because he felt, again, there are many many different reasons why that have been offered, but we clearly are not getting this straight story here. So I do think it's a national security risk. So, I mean, the national security, it's interesting, yesterday he tweeted out classic right-wing bot talking point, why do politicians on both sides care a hundred times more about the border of Ukraine than our border? Which right. could have been lifted straight from a kind of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Gosar press release. I had Yoel Roth on my show this week, uh, the former Twitter head of trust and safety, who had to flee his home because Musk stands threatened his life and Musk suggested falsely he was a groomer, a lovely guy. And Yoel Roth made the point that we should stop treating Musk's politics as somehow mercurial. Oh, is he an independent? Is he, what is he? He's anti-establishment. No, he's not. He's just your bog-standard far-right Republican who's spewing Fox and Breitbart talking points. And that becomes very clear with this border trip. And the best part of this is, not the best part, actually the worst part, most ironic part, which really annoys me and I hope annoys your listeners, which is that he goes to the border, as you say, does this Republican stunt with a Republican congressman. He's busy running an anti-Semitic campaign against the ADL. And yet at the same time, the Biden administration just gave him another contract this week to SpaceX. They just got another government contract. I think worth $70 million. And at the same time, the Wall Street Journal does an op-ed last week saying, hey, why is the Biden administration targeting Musk with all these investigations and lawsuits? He shares it going, yeah, they seem to be targeting me. Yeah, they are targeting you with taxpayers' cash. <laughs> why? <laughs> Chuck Schumer just hosted Elon Musk. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that more Democrats don't ask Chuck Schumer, why are you hosting Elon Musk? This classic Democratic Party. You can beat us. We'll give you the stick to beat us with. We'll still be nice to you and host you and reach out across the aisle and be bipartisan. Can you imagine, just imagine for a second, Molly, Senator Mitch McConnell as majority leader or Kevin McCarthy hosting George Soros for an event. <laughs> well, forget George Soros, <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg or some, I don't know, some Democratic billionaire who gives billions to the party and slags the Republicans all the time. It would never happen. And if it did happen, the Republican base would go mad and McConnell slash McCarthy would have to apologize and withdraw the invite. But not on the Democratic side, they just hosted Elon Musk as if it's totally normal to host Elon Musk. And one last point on this, the Ronan Farrow piece, I hope everyone has read the Ronan Farrow piece, not just for what Musk says in, is quoted as saying in there. There's a Pentagon spokesman in a Democratic administration who tells the New Yorker, uh, I don't know if I can talk to you unless Mr. Musk gives me permission. Huh? What? Government right. spokespeople have to get permission from Elon Musk to talk to journalists? Right. Where are we living? In an oligologoglaki? <laughs> Sorry, Maddie. <laughs> yes, exactly. In oligarchy. Yes. And I think that's a really good point. And we don't see Democrats do that enough. They're weak. I would also add there aren't all that many great alternatives. So there is a question of like, why is government putting its finger on the scale for someone who we know is clearly at best conservative, at worst severely, you know, mentally ill. I mean, what I think is really interesting and you see this with the biography that just came out, these very severe, right-leaning, perhaps autocratic. And, you know, I want to say 
racist, but I want to say something that's like a little less extreme than racism. But clearly, I mean, the whole idea, South Africa was based on this racism, right? So this is a, the family has, you know, these are like strong roots. I mean, this is not like the guy just came along to these values. I mean, it seems very clear that Elon Musk has always believed these things. It's an interesting topic you raised. Another topic that, again, reminds you why liberals always fight with one arm behind their back. I want to say a couple of things. One is you mentioned like, you know, is he kind of mentally, he behaves in a deranged fashion. I, I just want to clarify, because I know this is not what what you were saying. Like the guy has talked about being on the spectrum, right? He's talked about right. his issues. That is not why he's a whole awful person. Let's just be very clear no, about that. I hate when you know not. Walter Isaacson in his biography talks about all of you know that that aspect of his character and does that make him a jerk? I personally get very frustrated when people are like, oh, you know, it's like Republicans say we have all these shooters because of mental illness. No, first of all, don't blame violence on mentally ill people, right? And number two, there are lots of people with mental health issues who are not jerks, right? This, right. Is, this is the fundamental. Right, right, right. He's a jerk because he's a jerk. He behaves in a deranged manner because a lot of people on the right, as we just discussed at the start of this show, behave in a deranged manner. That seems to be more related to the politics of these people than anything inside of their head. As many people have pointed out, Musk wasn't always like this, like he wasn't this deranged and conspiratorial five, ten years ago. It's, it's the more he goes down the, into the right-wing fever swamps that he behaves like every other right-wing grifter. So I think it's worth just establishing that. To come back to your point about racism, you know, he's been tweeting recently about South Africa and talking about, you know, kill the whitey song and all the stuff that's going on in South Africa. He's been endorsing some rather dangerous tropes about white genocide in South Africa that Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump have done in the past. I would say this, look, whether his racism today, and as I say, I've done a long deep dive about the racism on X and the racism that comes from his own account, some of the neo-Nazis he replies to and amplifies and some of the horrible things he says. Is that a product of his childhood and upbringing? I genuinely don't know. But maybe it's funny how we don't talk about it because that's like it's off limits to point out that the guy grew up in white controlled South Africa. Maybe Maybe that's part of his worldview. I'm not saying it is, but I would argue that, you know, as a Muslim, as somebody who spent the last 20 years always having to justify my views as, well, it's not because of my religion or, you know, don't typecast me because I'm a Muslim or I don't have to apologize for what Muslim countries are doing. I'm not even from the Middle East. And I spent half my life having to defend myself saying, well, no, I'm not speaking on behalf of Iran. Right. Or whatever it is. No, I know. It's funny that a guy actually from apartheid South Africa who now says racist things is not asked to, well, is this because of your upbringing? And whose grandfather went to apartheid South Africa because he liked apartheid so much. I mean, I get conservatives saying to me, well, your grandfather was a communist, so you must be a communist. By the way, to which I say, <laughs> my grandfather did the right thing and refused to name names for the House on American Activity when the American government went rogue. And I hope that if I'm in a position, I would do the same. And so I do think it is an incredible, incredible sense in which like, he should not be given the benefit of the doubt. But I just want to move on from Elon Musk for two seconds. So there's going to be a government shutdown. Republicans are worried. I was on CNN with a Republican strategist just like an hour or two ago, and he was saying he was reading out these statistics and he was like, well, 20 percent of Americans will blame the Biden administration for this shutdown. And yeah. I was like, OK, I don't think that's true, but sure. What? So three quick things in response to that. Number one, Republican strategies. Isn't that oxymoron these days? I would just say on the, on the title. Number two, the polling does suggest that if you put, if you look at the polls, and you and I can talk about polls another day, the polling does suggest, if you believe the polls, that a bigger plurality of voters blame Democrats 
in Congress plus the Biden administration than blame the House GOP. And I think that's a fact. That's also part of asking the question. You're dividing up Democrats into Biden and Democrats. So some people pick Democrats, some people pick Biden. But the, look, we don't know the exact numbers. Clearly, there's a big number of Americans who blame Democrats. Now, many of them will be Republicans who just blame Democrats for everything. There's polarization in this country that underlies every poll. But the third point I would make is this. It does matter what Democrats say. I say this all the time. Every time you leave a vacuum in politics, just as in nature, you cannot leave a vacuum. It abhors a vacuum, right. right? So when Democrats say, oh, well, let's get out of the way and let Republicans destroy each other. Oh, I'm not going to comment on this. I'm going to stay above the fray. It doesn't work in 2023. It just doesn't. And therefore, when you see polls suggesting, for example, give me some random poll results from recently. Donald Trump delivered on his agenda more than Joe Biden has. That's what one poll showed recently. Donald Trump's economy was better than Joe Biden's economy. That's what many polls show. Joe Biden's mental competence is less than Donald Trump's. There's a new poll out this week from Morning Consult that shows Democrats are seen as more ideologically extreme I than Republicans, crazy. right? There's yeah. one underlying theme to all these poll results, apart from quote-unquote polarization in America, and that is that Democrats have allowed Republicans to define the nature of the arguments that we have. So Republicans go around screaming that Democrats are baby killers and QAnon and groomers and evil and Satan. I'm not even just joking. These are actual words that Republican politicians have used to describe Democrats. Marjorie Taylor Greene says Democrats have started killing us, right? This is what they say. Meanwhile, Democrats run around like Joe Biden yesterday, giving speeches saying, John McCain, what a wonderful guy. I miss John. And go around saying, let's be bipartisan and let's reach across the aisle and let's be grown up. That doesn't work. That's asymmetric warfare, right? One side is demonizing the other. The other side is busy saying, hey, let's pass a bipartisan infrastructure act. Where's the credit for that? You don't get any. So it's these polls all do make the same with the shutdown. It's not surprising that Democrats are going to get blamed partly because we're polarized, partly because Democrats have not gone on the offensive in us. And this is why, you know, it all comes down to messaging and media wars. It doesn't come down to your pocketbook. It doesn't come down to what is the inflation rate. Yes, yes. You know, people don't vote in that way. I'm sorry, it's vibes. Sorry to bring up an old teacher. Right. A lot of what passes for <laughs> politics in this country is just vibes. When I meet people who are Democrats, I meet normie Democrats who'll say to me, oh, well, Joe Biden's too old. And I think, you know, Donald Trump looks healthier. Literally, somebody said that to me recently. I was like, what? You think Donald Trump is more mentally fit than Joe Biden? Well, he looks that way. I was like, what? It's literally because he's heavier. And it's not even because that person's gone and studied their statements or watched no, a bunch of videos. Not. It's just what they're hearing in the air. Vibes. Medi, I could keep you on for another 40 <laughs> minutes, but then we'll both get in trouble. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me and let me rant on a Friday. <laughs> if you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Daniel Squadron is one of the founders of the States Project. Welcome to Fast Politics, Daniel Squadron. Thank you so much. It's an honor. So talk to us about what the States Project is. Well, States Project believes that state lawmakers are just about the most important policymakers in the country and have been left to the worst forces in our politics for 50 years. So the States Project is an effort to try to build power in state legislatures for lawmakers committed to improving lives with broadly popular values and goals, and then giving the lawmakers the tools the training they need to govern in a way that delivers for their constituents and uh, improves lives, both in the short term and over time. So Republicans have had a head start here. Let's talk a little bit about ALEC. And like with so many things, Republicans have had a head start. Yes. And ALEC, you know, is the American Legislative Exchange Council, which I know you know and probably many of your listeners do, but most Americans have never heard of it. It's the most important civic organization in the country that most people have never heard of. It was founded in 1972, the same time as the Heritage Foundation. 
in order to drive extremist, far-right, special interest issues to state lawmakers around the country. I served in the New York State Legislature for nearly a decade. And on the other side of the aisle, Republicans were in the majority and were being handed issues and getting support, ideas, prop state contact from Alec. And those ideas were coming from their biggest donors. The sort of thinking behind Alec was that if you could give state legislators who don't have a ton of money already written legislation, they would use it. And that is kind of what's happened, right? Exactly. That legislation gets written in secretive Alec working groups by big corporations and extremist interest groups. So one of the things that has happened in state legislatures around America is there are a couple of new laws that you can sort of trace back to this. And maybe they're not ALEC, but they are from this influence. I would think one of them would be the lowering punishments for child labor, right? That's something we've seen pop up at different state houses. Sarah Sanders did it. Then we also saw the governor of Arkansas. We saw um, pushes of anti-trans bills. You can see the these themes reverberate throughout state legislatures. You can, you know, and I think that what happened with the constitutional right to make healthcare decisions for oneself through reproductive health decisions and abortion is, is in many ways the icon of this constitutional right defined explicitly. We're talking about SB 8 in Texas here. Well, I'm really talking actually about the Mississippi law that gave these Supreme Court justices the excuse to erase a constitutional right. So Dobbs. Dobbs, exactly. There were more than a dozen different versions popping around, many lookalikes, all designed as part of a strategy to give the court a smorgasbord to choose from in order to erase the right in the 20-teens. We were in Mississippi in 2019. That bill had just passed and if you were working in the state legislature, you knew exactly why it was passed in, in exactly the form it was. And you knew, as you point out, similar bills in Texas, Missouri, Kentucky, and around the country. So many of the Supreme Court decisions we've seen lately are the product of these cases that are crafted for the Supreme Court decision. You know, it usually the way it's supposed to be is you have a case and then the court decides. But now we have a situation where because there's so much money in conservative politics and these conservative policies, they really were seeing cases that are crafted to get a certain Supreme Court decision. And that I think of the 303 Creative decision, which is a really good example of that. 303 Creative, the woman never made a website, but she wanted to know she could discriminate against gay people if she decided to. It's really their cycle is state legislatures and the court back and forth. State legislatures, because between gerrymandering, lack of public attention, and I would say disdain from our side, they have outsized power in the courts because they don't need to answer to the people. Meanwhile, on our side, I would say there's an obsession with the presidency and the every two-year fight for Congress. You know, it's interesting. Until this past November, Democrats had a trifecta inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C., both chambers of Congress and the White House, and yet the right to abortion was erased and yeah. then erased for hundreds of millions of people, including every state in the South, except in Virginia. Issue after issue, state legislatures in the court is what they're doing. And we're, you know, dancing about the shiny object. 
So I want to ask you, as we're sort of looking at these state legislature bills, give us an example of what your organization does. The first thing we do, and this is really important, is we try to make the job for state lawmakers who are there to be responsible to their constituents easier. This is a our job. I know that the idea of the term state lawmaker just just sings glamour and glitz. And <laughs> it's probably even harder, left glamorous to let with the, than people would imagine or the pop culture commentary would mock. These are people living in Albany. And these are people commuting to Albany. In my case, <laughs> yeah. 153 miles, you know, twice a week from my home, my kids, or Springfield or Lansing or you know, it's part-time in most states, even the states it's full-time, it's low pay. There's little or no staff support. You know, sometimes you'll ask a state lawmaker, how many staff do you have? And they'll say, oh, there's one person for everyone. So a lot of the issue is you get into office, there's an issue that drove you there. You care about your local school. You care about a bridge that's falling apart. You want to do public service. You get there and you have to deal with a thousand bills a year. And on the other side, high-powered lobbyists, Alec, others are just surrounding you with information. If what you want to do is be responsive to your constituents and say, like, how, you know, there's this bridge issue in my district. We're in a budget crunch. What do I do about it? You know, it's possible that, you know, if you're in Kansas, somebody in Nebraska has faced that issue and solved it. The one thing we do is we try to connect lawmakers across states who have common issues that aren't driven or talked about by lobbyists inside the halls of their capital, but matter a whole heck of a lot to their constituents. The second thing we do is try to just give them the tools to think about how to work together. You know, in Michigan and Minnesota and Pennsylvania this year, there are extremely tight majorities, won by just a couple of dozen votes and no votes to give if they want to do things like raise the minimum wage or pass paid family leave. So we help give tools and a framework so that they can figure out how to work together and where they have the vote. So it doesn't end up sort of in in what happened in New York when I was there, which is infighting that meant very little could get done. And it was hard to make the case to the voters next time around. I think of Minnesota as sort of this incredible example of Democrats killing it when it comes to state legislature. Can you tell us what they did right there? One thing they did that is really important I want to send around to every state in this country is they imagined the future before it occurred. And the Minnesota Senate flipped this year, which created a trifecta there where there had been split government that was hard to get things done in. But they didn't start planning or thinking about their agenda after Election Day. They were planning, thinking, doing the hard work with some of the partners who have issues they care a lot about, the constituents they care about, and each other for years, even before they had the gavel that let them move legislation. So prior preparation prevents poor performance. It's a good old cliche, and sometimes things are cliches for a reason. That's one thing they did. And again, any state in this country, deep red, purple, right blue, planning matters a lot. The second thing is they knew that the way they got there was voters who turned out for down-ballot races or crossed parties from the top of the ticket to the bottom of the ticket. So they were very focused on delivering tax relief for most Minnesotans, expanded rights so that everyone could live their lives with equal opportunity. They were very clear on their values and very clear on making the case publicly about them. The third thing is, you know, they don't have a full-time legislature. 
So they were on the clock. And thinking about your deadline and the period of time you have can really help. You know, it's an interesting question because those sorts of tools and lessons are ones that are certainly not rocket science, but it can be hard for a new state lawmaker or a new majority to take on after things get started. Things move so quickly, you're responsible for the agenda every day. The winds blow pretty strong in these state legislatures from outside interests. And so just having a framework that you want to do things that are popular, that are economical, that will actually, you know, over time help the state and people's finances, that will meaningfully improve lives in ways that are demonstrable so that you're telling the truth to constituents. That kind of framework, it's not three-dimensional chess, but it can be very helpful once you're in the pressure cooker. Tell me what you guys do. So you connect state lawmakers with each other, and then do you supply them with bills? We connect lawmakers with each other. We help groups of lawmakers. Joanna McClinton, who's the speaker in Pennsylvania, just talked about this this week, to actually prepare for and think about the future. So different kinds of groups of folks getting together, making plans for the future. And the state's project also does post on our website at statesproject.org a bunch of bills that are really key bills to achieve some broadly popular goals like equal opportunity for all and affordable quality health care uh, and every kid in this country graduating high school with a good K through 12 education. So there are bills that are reflections of ways to achieve these goals that we've seen occur in other states on the website. And then because there's always new ideas, there's always the need when you're in a legislature to get the votes of your colleagues. The state project helps lawmakers think about what other ideas they might need and then help them try to find them. So let me ask you, as we are in this fight for our lives, this 2024 election, will democracy survive? What do you think is the sort of state legislature, what races you're watching? I know I am thinking a lot about Virginia right now. Uh, yeah, 2024, privilege. <laughs> right. Yeah. But let's talk about what it looks like Virginia now and then what races you are, are on your radar. And there's a whole lot. The States Project, we say you have, you know, 50 mini congresses out there around the country. Each one has its own interesting dynamics when it comes to the political side of the work. Virginia is incredibly close in both chambers. You know, there's a real risk in Virginia. Talk about the state saving the democracy. If both chambers are lost and Youngkin can sort of do whatever he wants, the governor down there, there's even the risk that they could start to mess with and undermine the presidential election. Those 13 electoral votes coming out of Virginia are critically important to actually be legitimately counted and operated. So Virginia this year, incredibly close in both the House and the Senate, and the stakes could well be the free and fair presidential election. Wait, why? I feel like the stakes are choice, right? Like Youngkin could definitely get rid of choice and he could certainly do a lot of Florida style stuff. But why would the stakes be free and fair elections? Right. Well, certainly choice because it's the last Southern state where abortion is still legal. And for the free and fair presidential election, there's this kind of concept that's been bouncing around the extreme right wing that your state legislatures have oh, this absolute power right. when it comes to presidential electors and the president and the presidency. I think Supreme Court did a surprisingly good thing that, earlier this summer. Right. That's the state legislature theory, right? Right. 
And the Supreme Court said in the break that legislatures can't act totally outside of their state constitution. They might even need the governor to sign off on fundamentally undermining the election. What they didn't say is that the clarity and validity of elections is enough of a federal prerogative that states can't match with it. So if you have a unified anti-democratic legislature and Glenn Youngkin trying to prove that he's Trumpier than the man himself, and you have a state that has tended to vote for Democrats over the last few presidential cycles, that's a real risk. So the state's project is very concerned that people are just looking past Virginia. Yeah, I'm concerned that people are looking past Virginia. If you're listening to this podcast, there is a major, super important state race going on right now. Right now. And again, if I was a betting person, I would sit this one out. It's so close right now. I'm not, but it's real close. Yeah. And then in, in 2024, you know, there's some of the usual suspect states that are really important. Michigan has been doing incredible work, just as Minnesota did. That House majority is razor thin, has to be defended next year. A Minnesota, you talk about all the work they got done. Both chambers are up for election. You're talking about hundreds of votes having determined the majority there. The Pennsylvania House with the Pennsylvania miracle in 2022 with the state's project help Pennsylvania House split by fewer than 100 votes. That has to be defended. And then across the country, you know, a lot of other interesting places and thresholds. You know, Nebraska having a supermajority or not can make a big difference. Uh, Arizona is a place that hasn't quite gotten over the top of the hood. And, you know, in all of these places, that in Virginia, people can get involved the way you say it. At Stage Project, we actually create a tool for people to get involved called Giving Circle, where they can actually create their own giving group, become experts on a state, get their friends and neighbors to start singing this incredibly important tune and have a vastly bigger impact on the outcome than they ever could at Congress. It's not too late to even start a Giving Circle or Virginia if folks appropriately get worried after they hear everything you said. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Oh, anytime. Thank you for having me. Steve Inskeep is the host of Morning Edition and Up First on National Public Radio and author of Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Welcome to Fast Politics, Steve. Thank you. It's great to be here. I have a theory of why you wrote this book, but I want to hear from you. Why did you write this book? I was going to say, if you already know, uh, I can just listen and find out people myself. People love that. Tell me your theory. I want to know the theory. Well, so you wrote this book about Lincoln. And I think that when Biden got inaugurated, which would be about three years ago, there was a lot of sort of feeling that he could be a sort of Lincoln president. Oh, so that's the theory. Yeah, that's my theory. Is that not right at all? Well, I think the, the, the timeline would complicate that a little bit because I started it in early 2020, the spring of 2020. I think I started with a particular interest in history and evolved to understand how it related to the politics of now. And you're definitely right that it relates to the politics of now. But my starting point is that I've always admired Lincoln and I grew up in Indiana where he spent a lot of his boyhood. And then I've written two other books on the 19th century. And so you learn a lot about Lincoln and just the context and the background, and you see how it relates to the present day as well. And then I got this idea to do a book that would tell Lincoln's whole life 
through his meetings with people who were in some way different from him, like a diverse group of people, I mean, different backgrounds and also different races and genders and all sorts of different things. And then I realized it wasn't exactly a book about difference. It was mainly a book about disagreement, about his meetings with people who disagreed and how he dealt with them. As you can see, the purpose of the book is creeping closer and closer to our really discordant and divided moment now, where I don't really think we're like headed for a civil war or anything, but Lincoln's time is something to tell us. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can say that we're definitively not. Again, I hate this civil war talk, and I think it's really important to not ever sort of have rhetoric that is inflammatory, but we're as certainly as much on a precipice of terrifying political violence as we've ever been in my lifetime. Oh, political violence is another thing. Political violence is very possible because it's just this very American thing, right? Like you look into history and you realize we've had a lot of it of different kinds at different points. I should say about a civil war, I mean, I don't predict the future and if it happens, I'll cover it. But what makes me think it's not imminent is what really would it be about? I mean, the Civil War was about slavery, which was this huge economic system that implicated everybody in the country in various ways. And it was an enormous difficulty to do anything about it, even when people agreed that it was wrong. Mm. We have today this big divide in the country, but it's really, and I don't mean to say there are no serious issues. There are serious big issues, things like abortion. We could list 10 big things, but it's a really incoherent divide. I don't see people truly going like, into armies and civil war about memes and attitudes and the various things that people argue about and get mad about day by day. Yeah, it doesn't seem eminent. It is, though, this strange Earth 1 versus Earth 2 reality, which could ultimately descend into anything. But I want to get back to this idea of this sort of relevance of Lincoln to now. So talk to me about that. Yeah, what Lincoln did face was a divided society where people had radically different ideas of society and also had every other kind of difference that they have because, yeah, I mean, it's it's a republic. It's a democracy. And I think that in this book, I'm able to show him practicing a skill that a lot of us just sort of have contempt for now, have lost respect for or thrown up our hands. It's like useless to talk to the other side. They're all zombies over there. They don't listen. They've got alternative facts. Everything's made up. What's the point of arguing with them? It's very frustrating. And I don't deny some truth in that. It can be very frustrating to talk to people on the other side. And it is very hard to change the mind of a human being. I mean, think about that. You go to Thanksgiving with your crazy uncle or crazy to you, and you think you're going to change his mind over dinner, like the beliefs that he's evolved over the last 30 years. I mean, that's not very likely. But Lincoln understood that even if you don't change the other person's mind, even if they don't change your mind, you can get something out of that encounter. You might find out of like 10 big things, you agree on one. You might find out that you don't agree on anything and can't do business with this person at all, but you learn something from the exchange. He even had people, because he's a politician, and he's practical. And he's trying to get get things done. There are even occasions where he was able to use people. They didn't agree about anything, but he managed to get some use out of them for his cause. It's true. I kind of want to argue with you about talking to the other side. As much as I am a person who like comes from the bulwark and appreciates never Trump conservatives. And, you know, I mean, I interviewed Dr. Hotez in Austin this weekend and we had RFK Jr. and lots of really menacing looking people trying to get us distracted or perhaps looking for the opportunity to do something 
really bad. So I do feel like, you know, it's one party wants to give you health care and the other party wants to end your rights. I mean, I understand that you're on the straight news side, so it's you have to seem less partisan. But it does seem to me like the insanity of the situation has has to be hard to parse. I grant what you're saying. I don't even know. I mean, uh, different we must. Did I just drop the book title? But no, actually, I, I think we don't necessarily disagree. I mean, there are some divides that you can't bridge. But the lucky thing is that democracy doesn't require that. I mean, democracy doesn't require everybody to agree. And when someone says, can't we all get along? I mean, that famous Rodney King quote, which was so heartfelt and so sincere at the time, but as a political philosophy, actually, no, we don't. And we're not going to right. because it's a free society and, and we all have different backgrounds and we're going to have different ideas, including a lot of crazy ones. And that's another thing that I learned studying the 19th century. There have always been crazy conspiracy theories and bananas ideas and warped ideas of humanity. That's always with us. But you need a majority to be sensible. You need to assemble a coalition of the majority that is sensible. And I could give an example that's going to be really familiar to you, Liz Cheney. I'm guessing that if we talked about LGBTQ rights, you don't agree with Liz Cheney at all. Find her bananas and dangerous. But if you are thinking in terms of getting facts out about January 6th, Liz Cheney was very valuable to the country. It cost her a primary election, of course, but she did her job. And that kind of alliance is the kind of thing that I think about when I think about Abraham Lincoln, who led the country into the Civil War. I mean, he didn't get along with everybody either. Literal war against other people in this country, but he knew he could keep and he had to keep a majority on his side. And he ended up with a lot of literal slave owners who fought for the Union side and supported the country, which means that in the long term, they did something to end slavery, which is kind of wild to think about, that slave owners helped to end slavery. And that is a tribute to Lincoln that he made room in his coalition for people like that and didn't say you're immoral and wrong Get out of here. Don't you think that actually that case sort of makes my case? I mean, Liz Cheney, I don't agree with her on a lot of stuff, but she her heart, she wants government to succeed. I mean, she believes in the sort of democratic principles. She is truly loathed and despised by people like Jim Jordan and even people like Kevin McCarthy, who run the House GOP, consider her to be, you know, an enemy of the state. I mean, I think of my own grandfather, Howard Fast, who was jailed by McCarthy right from his trial right to his jail cell in 1950s. And I wonder when people in the government are wrong or evil or not respecting the democratic norms, if we don't say so, who will? Oh, well, I mean, you call out people who don't respect democratic norms. I don't think the call here is to be dishonest or to suppress the truth. The call is to try to deal with people where you can. I mean, I think that would be Lincoln's call. And you discover sometimes in a big country with this Republican, small R, Republican system that we have, that there are people who you despise that maybe become allies from time to time. I mean, I think about something like the recent push by the state legislature in Alabama to again right, and again and again example. and again impose congressional districts so there can be one less black representative 
or one more Republican representative or however they look at it. And I mean, I understand their argument. They're like, it's racist to consider race at all. We should just do the lines that we want that elect more Republicans. But it's obviously not about racism. Sure. Let's acknowledge their their argument. But basically, the courts have told them again and again and again, you're wrong. And they keep going back. They've gone back twice to the Supreme Court. Without knowing, you can imagine that they had a hope that the conservative majority, supermajority on the Supreme Court would one way or another back them. And, and you know, maybe they wouldn't back him in the end, but maybe they do one of those shadow docket orders, which would let him get another year or two out of the map. This could just go on forever and ever and ever. And the court, who I'm guessing you have had a lot of criticism for, knocked him down and said, actually, no, that's not allowed. And so there was somebody sticking up for the system. Right. And we could have a long debate about why they chose to do that and whether the public criticism of the court on some other cases had something to do with their opinions or whether they decided it purely on the law. I don't know. But they did something that you would agree with, even if a large majority of their decisions are things you don't agree with. No, I agree. And I also think something like that is pretty clear cut, but it is hard. I mean, don't you agree? Oh, it's hard. I mean, especially when you have a situation like right now, Trump versus Biden, you cannot accurately describe Trump as a candidate without seeming at least partisan. Oh, you mean because if you just say the facts about him? Yeah, it seems very partisan. I would grant that. But now you're asking me, I think, maybe about being a news person, because as a journalist, I describe Trump. And my job is to state the facts and to try really hard to state them calmly and state them fairly. I mean, I wrote a thing about this the other day about the question of how to think about Trump, Trump. Trump is a criminal defendant because we are in a country where you're innocent until proven guilty. And for all we know, one, two, three or four juries may well find this person innocent. I have no idea because that is a matter of criminal law. And who knows what evidence they're going to admit? Who knows what evidence they're going to exclude? What anybody's going to think of anything? What novel legal defense may come up? So I'm willing to accept that Trump is innocent until proven guilty. But I also know as a journalist who's been present and following facts what he did. And so I am not inclined to say allegedly tried to overturn the results of the 2020 Mm -hmm. election because because we know all the evidence. You know, we're just going to say he did that. And if challenged on a source, I can say, well, he went to more than 60 courts and lost every time. Thousands of election officials from both political parties affirmed that the election results were fair. So that's really not something we have to argue about. I think my job is to accurately describe both of those things. He's in a criminal proceeding. We honestly don't know how it's going to turn out but we do know the facts that are at issue. Yeah. So let's talk about Lincoln. One of the things I think is really interesting is this idea that he really did need to kind of sell what he was doing. Yeah. Talk about that. It's an incredible thing because of how little support really there was for abolition in the United States. There were all of these interests and prejudices and laws in favor of slavery And remarkably few people who said, this is terrible, we have to end it right now. There was a very widespread view that slavery was wrong. And you know this history, Southern states had embraced slavery since the founding, since before the founding of the country, and it got stronger and stronger as an industry, so to speak. And Northern states had gradually abolished it. And so people in the North understood that slavery was wrong. Honestly, a lot of people who own slaves would say, yes, this is an evil. It is wrong. But when you got around to the question of what to do about it, everybody would hem and haw, or many people would, and have reasons not to act. 
Northerners, for example, this was true in Abraham Lincoln's Illinois, were opposed to slavery, but would be very reluctant to have emancipation because what if some of these millions of suddenly freed people came north in search of work and were competing against me for a job and wanted to live in my neighborhood? People didn't want that. There were even people making arguments that if millions of enslaved people were suddenly freed, they would not get along with white people. There would be a race war and they would be exterminated. And therefore, according to this argument, it was better for black people to keep them enslaved. Crazy, crazy thinking to us. But these extraordinary rationalizations made it really hard to build a big political coalition against slavery. And Lincoln had to be very careful about how he talked. He had to be very careful about what he stood for, even who he associated with. And he thought really hard about his audience and thought about, how can I say it is in your interest to oppose slavery? How can I remind people that slavery may spread into this very state and harm you in some way? And that is why we need to be at least against it spreading, even if we can't end it right now. His efforts to craft a political argument are fascinating to me, and they're grounded in his understanding of human nature and how people kind of do build their beliefs around their self-interests. And he had to work with that and understand who he was talking to and understand their interests and try to unite them in a higher cause by engaging their interests in it. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing because we don't think about how unpopular doing the right thing can be. And and you will see again and again if you go back through history so many different times when doing the moral upstanding thing was wildly unpopular. Yeah. And there were people at the time who were saying the moral upstanding thing. Anybody who says, well, that's just how people believed at the time. There were plenty of people around saying why slavery was wrong and what ought to be done about it right now. But getting a majority to say that was really hard. I mean, and, and I'm thinking of a current example, if you'll allow me, where people are attempting this kind of politics and it has to do with climate change. There's this Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year that includes a bunch of money for renewable energy. And the administration is steering this, and there are plenty of other people who are engaged in it. A lot of the money for renewable energy products, new battery plants, solar farms, wind farms, and so forth, are going toward red states. And this is conscious on some level to make sure that people in red states who have not bought the science on climate change or increasingly have their own rationalizations for it. So like, yes, I accept climate change is real, but it's just not that big a deal. They haven't bought that, but this gives them an interest, a financial interest in the money, in the jobs, in what is honestly, I mean, it's, it's the energy industry. The energy that we use has to come from somewhere. We use a heck of a lot of it. We use an unbelievable amount of electricity. You and I are using some right now has to come from somewhere, might as well come from a wind turbine. Who cares? And if they can engage people in red states who to have an interest in climate change, the theory goes that changes the politics of climate change. Does that work? I don't know if it works or not. Honestly, again, I can't predict the future, but that's the kind of politics that we're discussing. So interesting. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. And now, your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung Fast. The government did not shut down, despite the fact that everyone seemed to think it would. Tell me what you see here. 
you're just trying to gloat because you <laughs> didn't think the government was shut down. You're giving me the chance to say that I said for two months that Perhaps this was never happening. you are our moment of fuckery. <laughs> the one time. Actually, that's not true. Jesse has been right before, but this one, uh, he was actually right. And literally every other newsroom thought the government was going to shut down. So Jesse being right about <laughs> the aversion of a government shutdown is our moment of fuckery. So the government did not shut down at the 11th hour, one Kevin McCarthy, the weakest. We have never had a speaker who is less good at math than Kevin McCarthy. And supposedly, even when he was whip, he could not count votes. So this guy uh, finally decided to pick up the CR that the Senate had passed twice with more than 75 votes. And he picked up that exact same CR and it's a he, he put it through. And so at the 11th hour, the government did not shut down. And so they have a kind of Hail Mary for 45 days, but would like to point out that after he did that, Matt, mighty Matt Gates, the Botox King, <laughs> went on uh, Jake Tapper's show, yes, this morning, which will be to yesterday morning for all of you. And he told Jake Tapper that he was going to just make McCarthy's life miserable. He was going to put together a motion to vacate or as now it is being called when you read it in shorthand, MTV. So we are in a terrible point in American history where MTV now stands for motion to vacate. And that, my friends, is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.